Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to AOA. Thank you for joining us. Merry Christmas. Hope you have a great holiday season, and we thank you for letting us be part of your days. We make our way through this Christmas week. We're going to be talking with Ethan Lane with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association today. Look back at uh, this past year and look ahead to priorities for the beef industry in 2022. We'll talk markets with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net and with the... uh, Another surge in COVID cases with the Omicron variant now taking hold. We're going to see how the rural health care system is holding up and handling it. We'll talk with Brock Slaybaugh with the National Rural Health Association about that situation here at the end of 2021. So all that coming up on today's program. But we'll start things off talking it over with Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report, who is in, I believe, California. Jerry, are you spending Christmas in California this year? Uh, indeed, I am uh, spending Christmas in Carlsbad, which is near San Diego, uh, where uh, my cousin's daughter and her uh, and her mother will be. Uh, she does, of course, have California roots because her father was born in North Dakota. Uh, but uh, I have to admit that having seen the temperatures in uh, Bismarck the last few days, uh, I'm glad I'm visiting relatives in California, not in North Dakota this Christmas. <laughs> Understand. Well, before you left Washington, D.C., of course, the big news was uh, that the Build Back Better plan did not get passed. And now a lot of questions about will it come back in 2022? If so, what form? What are you hearing? Well, I'm hearing that uh, Senator Schumer is going to put a bill on the floor for a vote, but I don't know what. Uh, you know, exactly what that bill will be. It will be some variation on what passed the House. Uh, Oddly enough, Senator Sanders uh, said he wanted to have a vote. Now, that's Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, the kind of independent socialist from from Vermont, uh, and he wanted to vote. And Senator Manchin said, yes, I want to vote, too. So we'll see. Now, if that fails, I think then we might have a real debate about the content of that bill. The the um, the problem I have seen with this legislation is that it's been all about how much money would be spent, not very much discussion about what's actually in it. And there are some pro- provisions in there that are important to agriculture. But if we had a real debate, a committee hearings, et cetera, then we would see how much support there is for those provisions on research and rural development and, and climate change. Uh, so it you know it could be a good development, but who knows if anything will pass in in the end? Well, no doubt you could find somebody that would like different parts of that bill. It's the overall amount and some of the uh, concerns about inflation and those things. And I think Senator Manchin said, yeah, he wants to vote, and he'll vote no. That's he made that pretty clear. Right, right. He certainly did. Now the National Farmers Union and the National uh, Sustainable Agriculture Coalition have both told me the bill is is needed for agriculture. And I think really when you get to these climate change provisions, uh, it's important because this bill contains uh, money for voluntary programs. But if you don't have more money for voluntary programs, then I think there would be a danger that there would be more calls for regulation on agriculture. Uh, And farmers certainly wouldn't like that. So we'll have to see where it goes next year. Another big issue continues to be supply chain. You're out there in California where a lot of the bottleneck uh, is occurring. uh, And we keep hearing the administration is going to get on this, going to work this out and to get things fixed. We're, We're not seeing many signs of it now. Are you hearing anything on this? Well, this week, this, uh, uh, Agriculture Secretary Vilsack and Transportation Secretary Buttigieg both wrote to the major ocean shippers appealing to them uh, to do their business in a normal way, which is that you would take uh, that when when a ship comes from China here, you take you fill it with agricultural goods and take them back. 
And what's been happening is that the Chinese have been paying extra for them to not load and therefore slow down the return of the ship to China, uh, but just to bring it back as soon as possible to bring more goods uh, to the U.S. Where this goes, I don't know. They're talking about, you know, they talk about what could the government, you know, what could the government do. Uh, but uh, I think by the time the government really did something, we uh, the problem would probably be solved. So, um, uh, I mean, it would just, you know, sort of peter out as, it, as, as the time goes on. Um, so at least there, there is this appeal, and hope, hopefully the shipping companies would um, think that that's uh, important to be listened to. Uh, I want to make sure that I say in this call that I understand you're retiring this week, and I'm happy to be interviewed, but I'm so sad that you're retiring because you have made such a contribution to American agriculture and to farmers' lives. I'm so impressed with the list of people that you've been interviewing on your program over the years, and I'm I, I'm sure there will be a successor, but it won't be someone who exactly replaces you. Well, Jerry, I appreciate that very much. You have been in this business. You've been one of the giants in ag journalism for a long time. And uh, I appreciate your willingness to come on and, and give perspective and uh, updates and uh, on these key issues like you have here on my show these last few years. And uh, with your contacts there in Washington, D.C. and with ag groups, I really appreciate that. Uh, it's going to be a, an interesting 2022. I was just going to ask you, with the midterm elections, a lot of times an election year kind of slows things down. Do you think that's the case or do things speed up as Democrats uh, may be worried about how those elections might turn out? Will push even harder to get some things done before those elections. Well, I think the Democrats will push hard to get things done. First of all, because they want to run on accomplishments. Uh, uh, and secondly, they do fear that the, that the Republicans will take the House at least and perhaps the Senate as well. And if they do that, then, uh, you know, the possibility of the, of the pieces of legislation that they've been wanting to push through uh, and things like child tax credits and family leave, things like that, that would not be possible with the Republicans in charge because they don't approve of those, uh, of those programs. So I think there will be a push, especially in the beginning of the year and then later in the year, um, you know, the focus will be on the elections. And one of the things there is that with the rural population decline, even those members if they're Democrats or Republicans, if they have uh, uh, in their in their districts, they're going to have to have more urban residents because there aren't as many rural residents as there used to be. So the pol political dynamics could be quite different in this election. It'll be an interesting year. Jerry, I want to again thank you. Uh, safe travels to you. Have a very Merry Christmas. And uh, I'm sure our paths will cross in the future. Look forward to that. Thanks again for all you've done. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. Take care. Merry Christmas. Jerry Hagstrom with The Hagstrom Report, joining us today from California. Up next, we're going to kind of review 2021, look ahead to 2022, key issues for the beef industry. Ethan Lane with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association joins us next here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Each and every day, DTN and Progressive Farmer editors are posting unique, original content to their website at DTNPF.com, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day -day business decisions. Their award-winning newsroom covers markets, news, and weather, while also providing insights on crops, cattle, equipment technology, and more. You'll find innovative topics like, would you plant soybeans in December? Experiments look at the possibility of boosting yields with early planting. Want to save time? Learn how through autonomous machinery systems. Will there be a surge in feed prices in 2021? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? The editors of DTN and Progressive Farmer are committed to delivering the essential intelligence farmers need every day to help your farm business be more efficient and profitable. Visit DTNPF.com today.
recently on Adams on Agriculture. Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. I guess the latest is we have some members of Congress getting into this and asking for some funding for these locks and dams. Well, the good news is when with the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that was signed into law by the president on November 15th, that's going to provide a sizable amount of money for a variety of projects, including locks and dams. But there's nowhere is it guaranteed that that funding for locks and dams will go to some of these specific projects that have been lingering for years, particularly on the upper Mississippi River. The good news is, again, we've got the funding, but now the, the next step is to make sure it gets allocated to some specific projects. And that's what a bipartisan group of senators, 11 total, 41 members of the House of Representatives, are very happy to see this bipartisan, bicameral expression of support for these specific projects. It's all part of this broader effort to improve the upper Mississippi. Mississippi River and Illinois River system. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, at the end of each year, you take a lot of times you take stock, you look back and see what kind of year it's been and then look ahead to what kind of year you hope it's going to be in the, in the coming year. So we're going to do that a little bit here for the beef industry with Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Ethan, Merry Christmas to you and thanks always for joining us. Uh, when you look back on 2021 for the beef industry, what stands out to you? I know there have been some accomplishments, but some real challenges along the way as well. Well, Merry Christmas to you too, Mike. You know, I think looking back on 2021, uh, the perspective uh, compared to our outlook at the beginning of 2021, um, I, I think we're, we're in a much, uh, much better position uh, here in December than we were last January. Um, you know, we've, we've seen uh, the market improve uh, uh, quite a bit, obviously, and, and, and that's always good news given the last couple of years in the cattle industry. But We've also had a really successful year in uh, making sure that this new administration coming into Washington, D.C. Uh, didn't come along with some really onerous uh, burdens for the cattle industry. We've spent a lot of this year pushing back on tax uh, provisions in some of these large spending packages that could have been extremely detrimental to cattle producers. We've seen those go by the wayside um, as that conversation has developed over the course of the year. We've seen uh, an achievement in getting another back-end 150 air mile exemption on hours of service for livestock haulers in the transportation package back in October. Um, you know, we've seen the industry really go on offense on climate, coming out with our, our uh, climate goals and sustainability goals and demonstrating our climate neutrality by 2040, um, which has really given the, the industry an ability to talk about what a good job our producers already do here in the United States uh, producing the best beef in the world with the lowest environmental footprint. Um, and we're having a really good, robust conversation about expanding packing capacity and adding more regional options for producers. Uh, those are all things that really help in the right direction. Uh, so it's been a really productive year, but you're right, we still have some challenges to address as well, and we're looking forward to digging back into those in 2022. Well, one of those, it's not a new challenge. It's certainly been out there for some time, but it's been brought maybe into more focus here in 21. Um, and that is cattle markets and uh, the packers' role in this and what needs to be done to uh, help producers see more profit in the marketplace. Uh, a lot of questions have been raised. A lot of proposals have been uh, put forward. 
this is going to carry into 2022. Where are we on this from NCBA's viewpoint, and what do you see uh, in the year ahead? Well, you know, I think we've seen a lot of areas of the country that haven't been really involved in this live cattle trade conversation. You know, we have affiliates that are predominantly cow-calf that have really gotten involved in this conversation over the last couple of years. That's a good thing. More producers, more voices, more different perspectives. Um, that's given us some clarity on things like cattle contract library, right? Some transparency tools that are really important for producers to make sure they have that competitive edge in negotiating with the packers. But we've also had a really robust conversation ongoing about the government's role in the cattle market. Um, you know, we have some specific regions of the country that, that very much want to see the government um, intervene in the cattle market. We have a lot of regions of the country that the more they've learned about this, the more they want to keep the government out of the cattle market. Um, but the one thing I can tell you is we are still very much divided in trying to figure out where to go on this. So I think that the state of the conversation right now um, can be summed up by looking at the way the House has proceeded on this versus the way the Senate is proceeding. The House, in passing the cattle contract library and the one-year LMR extension here a few weeks ago, demonstrated that they're really listening close to the ground of producers. They're recognizing those areas of broad agreement, and they're avoiding those areas of conflict until the industry can figure out where we want to go. But, you know, the Senate side, we, we seem to have a couple senators who are really kind of blinders on on, on, on their priorities. I'm hopeful that they're going to really tune in over the Christmas holiday to what their producers are telling them now versus maybe what they were telling them a year and a half ago so that we don't have any unintended consequences, um, you know, from, from some of this legislation on the Hill. Nevertheless, we're going to be talking about it through Houston and, and trying to figure out where, as an industry, we stand on some of these proposals. We're talking with Ethan Lane with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Ethan, the White House has come out and pretty much put the the uh, blame, if you will, for high meat prices right now for consumers. Put that blame uh, on um, consolidation in the meatpacking industry, the big conglomerates, as they call it. Um, certainly, there are a lot of people probably uh, would agree with that or are are, are quick to criticize uh, the, the big meatpacking companies. But it seems to me that's somewhat of an oversimplification in that it overlooks things like uh, uh, the cost uh, of fuel costs for transportation, for labor issues, and a lot of other things. It seems to me there are a lot of factors in here. Uh, what was your reaction or how do you respond to what the White House uh, is saying for the reason for high meat prices right now? No, I, I think you act, I think you summarized it pretty well. You know, I mean, the, the, the memo from, from week before last from the National Economic Council kind of restated what we already knew, right? This has been a, an environment that has really lent itself to the packers maximizing their profit over the last couple of years. They've used that leverage uh, to drive up prices um, at, the, uh, at the outlet of their, of their product and drive down input costs. Um, just like any different segment of the supply chain would if presented with similar circumstances. It does prompt questions about how we make sure nobody gets that much leverage again in the future, and I think that's where our, our focus continues to lie. That's why we're focusing so much on diversifying packing capacity and adding more regional options. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the, the White House coming out with a memo saying that, you know, it's breaking news that, uh, that four major corporations are doing everything they can to, uh, to increase profits for their corporations uh, isn't really breaking news to anybody, nor should it be. Yeah. Uh, we've learned in the supply chain situation we're in now, uh, we've learned that there are issues that must be addressed to keep this from happening in the future. Do you think these lessons are going to be learned and we correct them, or is this going to be an ongoing, or, or are there going to be situations we just can't avoid happening if something like a pandemic hits us again? You know, I think back to the beginning of the pandemic, and we kind of put our war room together here in D.C., and we, we triaged all the different things we thought might be a problem, right? Having never really confronted this in this way before. Um, with Omicron, we're running through that checklist again for the umpteenth time in the last almost two years now, and we have really been able to stress test everything in this supply chain and, and, and look for those weak points, right? Labor, um, labor challenges, and like you mentioned earlier, transportation challenges, um, you know, those, those nuts and bolts uh, uh, functions of moving live cattle around the country, getting them processed and getting them out the door, um, that is a really complicated set of, of maneuvers that has to occur to keep grocery store shelves full. Um, I think we are learning more and more about how to ensure that we never see the spring of 2020 in those kind of conditions again, whether it's a plant fire, whether it's a hacking, 
whether it's a pandemic, any of the other black swan events that we seemingly have heaped on us every couple months uh, in, the, in the cattle supply chain here in the U.S. Um, but, you know, one of the things that, that I think we have to keep in mind is we never know what the next one is going to look like. And so working on those underlying functions of the supply chain, making sure that we have flexibility to get our livestock haulers where they need to go, making sure that we have uh, labor laws in place that ensure that the packing industry can get the workers they need, have them showing up every day and consistently processing product, making sure that our cattle, uh, our cattle producers around the country have the tools they need to be profitable and supply that supply chain in a way that works for them as a business um, and, and allows them to grow. Um, all of those play into that larger discussion of economic sustainability that we've put so much focus on this year. Ethan, I want to thank you and all the folks at NCBA. Uh, you've been a big part of my show for many, many years, and uh, especially have enjoyed working with you and helping get the information out concerning the beef industry. And even though I'll be retired, I will continue to support the beef industry in a big way through my ongoing high levels of meat and beef consumption, okay? And, Mike, that is all we can ask of any good American, but I want to thank you on behalf of NCBA and cattle producers around the country for keeping everybody informed, keeping the dialogue going. Uh, you've been a true professional and a joy to work with, and, and we're sure going to miss you. Appreciate that. Merry Christmas, Ethan. Thank you very much. Merry Christmas. Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in 2022 and, and moving forward with cattle markets. Um, a lot of focus right now, consumers uh, looking at the reality of higher meat prices. And I think a couple of things have to be pointed out. One, higher meat prices doesn't mean higher profits for producers because producers are dealing with higher costs. So uh, we're talking inflation here, and that's a big issue. And that's why it bothers me when the administration comes out and wants to blame meat prices totally on, on the meat conglomerates. I mean, that's part of it. Uh, but it seems like that's the a political out for the administration trying not to uh, acknowledge their own uh, part in these higher prices that we're all dealing with. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk markets and the economy with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net as we continue here on AOA. Stay with us. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day -day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. As 2021 draws to a close, we look forward to 2022. Everyone at Growmark and their many FS member companies wish you and your family a happy holiday season and a prosperous new year. COVID-19 has continued to be a major challenge for everyone this year, along with some weather frustrations, but for farmers, much higher grain prices. This year, FS has supported farmers in many ways and will continue to do so in 2022. Happy New Year from FS. FS bringing you what's next. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rall. USDA's weekly corn export inspections totaled 1.001 million metric tons during the week that ended 12-16. That was up 84,428 metric tons from last week and was 231,406 metric tons above the same week last year. Mexico was the top destination with 35% of the total, although China and Japan were also each shipped over 200,000 metric tons. This season's total corn export 
was up to 11.31 million metric tons, which now trails 2020-2021's blistering pace by 12%. On the Board of Trade this morning, March corn trading four cents higher at 5.95, the May contract up four at 5.96. For soybeans, the January contract trading 12.5 cent higher at 13.05, the March contract up 13 cents at 13.07 and three quarters. For wheat, Chicago wheat March up six and a half cent at 7.84 and a quarter of a cent. Kansas City wheat March up 10 and three quarters at 8.24. Minneapolis spring wheat March up one and three quarters at 10.21 and a half cent. The May contract up one and three quarters at 10.11 and a half cent. The livestock complex was in the red on Monday, having little to go on as both the cattle on feed report and the hogs and pigs report will be released after the close on Thursday. Cash is expected to be lower with both cattle and hogs this holiday shortened week. The cash cattle page hasn't seen any interest arise from packers and given that they only bought 48,733 head last week and that they have cattle committed with time, it is not likely that they will be very aggressive when this week's trade on the Board of Trade February live cattle up 12 at 136.10 April up 22 at 14040. In feeder cattle, January up 2 at 15925, March up 17 at 16062. In lean hogs, February trading 97 cents higher at 8045, April up 52 at 8402. You're listening to AOA. Hey dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Always enjoy our conversations with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. Matt, Merry Christmas. Thanks for joining us. Merry Christmas, Bud. I'm glad to be on. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed our conversations uh, over the years. We've known each other for a long time. Going to going to miss these little get-togethers, but uh, our paths will probably cross from time to time, and uh, wish you the very best. You're doing a lot of great things and uh, getting a lot of good information out, and I've uh, really enjoyed working with you. Yeah, I've enjoyed working with you as well, Mike. Uh, I told you we don't live too awful far from each other, and we got each other's phone numbers so we can we can stay in touch, but it's been fun talking markets on the radio with you. Yeah, we'll stay in touch for sure. Okay, so let's talk some markets on the radio. Uh, here we are, the holiday season, kind of a, a lot of times a quiet time, but uh, there's there's a lot going on for the markets to react to uh, outside pressures and different things going on. Uh, how do you see this uh, these markets playing out through the through the holidays? Well, you know, yesterday obviously corn gave back a little bit, whereas beans were able to rally in the face of uh, really stiff resistance from your outside markets, with the crude oil market getting beat up and the equities getting worked over. You know, a dollar wasn't doing much there yesterday, but you come in here today and you see the Dow up almost 300 points. You see crude back up a buck fifty, and all of a sudden you look over and at one time we were trading beans up 20 cents. So you know. You get over that $13 level, and I think uh, some folks stepped in to buy, you know, that maybe we're kind of waiting to see if we can bust through that $13 uh, psychological resistance, if you will. You know, and, and I think the market's kind of cooled off here just a little bit since we did that. But regardless, you're still looking at double-digit gains for beans. Corn's up 3 to $0.04. Cents, and, you know, I think it all boils down to South American dryness. I mean, there's really not much else talk about here uh south america uh, the situation in argentina and southern brazil is you know one that needs monitoring obviously they've uh, had a pretty good crop going to, to date 
that they dried out, you know, and this anemia definitely is one of those uh, situations where when you have a strong anemia, Argentina struggles to raise a normal sized crop. So it's certainly going to spill over to uh, soybean meal because they put 50% of that on the world market, and that typically spills right over into corn. And so you see meal up strong again today. Hey, oil's up too. And so uh, lately we've seen meal up and oil down. You got both of them up today. So crushed margins certainly look healthy here today. Yeah, that dry weather scenario in South America, it's a story now, but it's really a story to watch over these next few weeks, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, and so if you end up with issues in Argentina, there's no doubt that uh, it's going to be supported to bean meal and to the soybeans. But, uh, you know, you take this dryness and you move it very far north at all, you know, and there's no question uh, that uh, corn, not only in Argentina, will get affected, but the safrina crop something we have to keep a very close watch on because, as we know, that's where Brazil produces the bulk of their corn. You know, and so with that being the case, uh, uh, if the safrina crop gets impacted by La Nina, there's no question, especially with the U.S. having such a uh, tight stock-to-use ratio, uh, you can see some real excitement in the corn market as well. So uh, both corn and beans would be something that would be uh, you know, heavily participating in this sort of a move, and that would be at the time whenever you're trying to do an acreage war. So uh, very interesting times here for the uh, ag market. I've been asking this question, when will the market start Maybe they already are. But when do you see the market starting to try to buy acres and what crop will they be trying to buy acres for? Yeah, I mean, so we have been already, you know, working on that. I mean, 550 December corn, we've seen a lot of that for a while. And holy smokes, I mean, those are some really interesting prices. You look out to next December, for instance, for cotton, you still got $90 cotton. Uh, you know, you look over at the wheat market, you know, and you've got uh, uh, July wheat there uh, in Chicago is back under $8, you know, but uh, you look to Kansas City and you're 815 yet. So I look for maybe even a little more premium to be built into that KC over Chicago. But regardless, I think that, uh, you know, uh, overall, I mean, the only thing you're going to be buying, I guess, on wheat acres is going to be Minneapolis, but uh, you're certainly seeing some price reaction all the way around. You still got $10 on your front month for uh, uh, Minneapolis. And then you, uh, you know, corn and beans, I think, will be the, where the lion's share of that acreage war is going to come from. So it's going to be very interesting to see, uh, given the fact that, uh, for instance, uh, natural gas prices have backed off significantly. You know, lately we're still under $4. Uh, you would think that fertilizer would kind of get some easing there, but it's just not happening uh, to date. Most of the anhydrous prices we see are up to 1500 still. And with that being the case, you know, you've got to think people that didn't get their fertilizer on in the fall might second guess corn acres. So there's going to be a lot of factors that play in. And I certainly think we're in the midst of this acreage war. But, you know, let's not get too disillusioned by the fact that prices are already awfully high, both for these corn and November beans. Yeah, I think you had a key point there. There are several factors, or at least more factors in those acres decisions this time around than maybe in years past. So we'll see how that plays out. And we talk about dry weather concerns in, in South America. Uh, it's early here, but uh, when you look at that drought monitor map, there has to be some concerns here in the U.S. as well. Well, there's major concerns. This drought monitor map is pretty pretty scary to look at, quite frankly. Whenever you look over, you know, in the western corn belt, I talked to a lot of producers and moving farther south, you know, that they're dry as a bone and they're very concerned with what their uh, situation is uh, heading into this next spring. Now, you know, around home, I think most of us have got a plethora of moisture uh, and we feel pretty good. But, you know, you get west of the Mississippi and it starts to get awfully dry. And a lot of times whenever you get a drought in that part of the world, it tends to move into our area. And so a lot of folks are kind of drawing parallels to the winter of 11 going into 12. I know that that's a fashionable thing to do anytime people get dry, but uh, by all means, you know, there's some meteorologists out there that are uh, throwing a, a caution flag up right now uh, due to how dry it already is. So um, it's something you're going to have to keep an eye on because, as you know, Mike, we're already running very tight carryout levels. So if you would come in here, uh, and even if you throw a fair amount of acres at both corn and beans, if you have any sort of a level of a drought this next year, it's going to be a dynamic market. Talking with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. What, what, what are you projecting right now as far as corn and bean acres? 
you know, I was 90 and 90 for quite a while. I still kind of think that maybe corn acres are going to be a million or better above bean acres. I think that uh, my bean acre adjustment is probably a little bit more rich than maybe some folks. I think when you get in the fringe areas, you're going to lose a few corn acres just simply due to the fact that if you didn't get the anhydrous on, you didn't, didn't get the dry fertilizer on, you're going to be putting $1,000 an acre into a crop. And so if you're not at an APH level, you know, 180 to 200 bushel type corn, it's going to be hard to get some folks uh, uh, talked into going ahead and planting corn. So I think you'll lose some fringe acres on corn. I think you'll lose some corn on corn acres for corn. And then you're also going to pick up acres for beans with the people that have uh, printed huge income on beans the last few years. Of course, bean yields have been fantastic. So, uh, yeah, I'm still probably going to be in that 90 and 90 level. But, again, I'm probably going to be at least a million acres above on corn. So maybe 90, 90 and a half and 89. Matt, what are you hearing from farmers about carbon markets and their willingness to to get into that? Are they cautious? Are they uh, in you know optimistic about it or skeptical of it? What are you hearing? You know, I've heard a lot, I've heard a, a little bit of everything, quite frankly, Mike. I guess my uh, recommendation to folks so far has been to do your homework. You know, talk to a lawyer, uh, definitely research more than one offer, because I know a couple of companies come to mind that have really been aggressive in trying to get guys to sign agreements right up front. And typically, uh, maybe a little more uh, uh, cautious approach would be the smart thing to do, because this is all new to a lot of folks. And so, you know, I, I don't know that I would just take the first offer that I get. So uh, I think that people need to be very cautious, uh, read the fine print, make sure that they're not uh, giving too much away because there's definitely some different agreements out there. And I think that um, anytime that you've got someone really wanting you to sign an agreement, you've got to understand that there's something in it for them as well. So we have to be very cautious in how we approach this. But it's certainly an exciting thing uh, to be able to use some of the practices we're already using uh, to be able to put a little bit of money in our pocket. I think that's a key part of it. For some, it's getting rewarded for what you're already doing. Uh, you may have to do some things to verify it, uh, things like that. But, uh, and of course, for others, it would be a more of adopting some new things. But uh, it seems like maybe this time around, we've been down this road before, but maybe this time around, there are some real economic opportunities for farmers. Absolutely. And, you know, not not everyone's doing everything they need to do probably to be able to get some money on the carbon credits. But certainly most producers, I think, are doing a fair amount of conservation work. And I do think that, uh, you know, maybe it will encourage even more uh, conservation work. But I've always said the farmer, uh, especially the generational farmers that I know have been the best environmentalists I know because they uh, know they need to take care of the land that was taken care of you know, for them to get an opportunity to farm it. So, you know, I, I think that uh, we just have to be really cautious into how we approach this. And uh, again, let's try to uh, find a good partner that we want to move forward with and someone who, uh, you know, we can uh, have a mutually beneficial relationship with. Well, again, Matt, good to talk with you. Merry Christmas to you and your family. And uh, we'll stay in touch, okay? Absolutely. Sure appreciate you, Mike. Take care. Matt Bennett with Ag Market. Net. All right. Up next, uh, someone that I we have talked with uh, several times over the past couple of years, um, and I thought maybe we wouldn't have to be talking very much <laughs> at this point, but here we are again, and that is because of uh, coronavirus and now the latest variant, of course, Omicron. Uh, Brock Slayball with the National Rural Health Association through this pandemic has been coming on with us and keeping us up to date on issues uh, such as how the national rural health care system is dealing with uh, the pandemic. Uh, when we talk about needs in hospitals and what's available to folks in rural America from a health care standpoint. Well, here we are. We're seeing these uh, cases rise once again. So we're going to get an update from Brock Slayball where we are right now in the rural health care system. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. 
It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Head to toe, everything's changed. Head to toe. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Cynthia and Ed. My mother was always very active and independent, and she was familiar with her neighborhood. But one day, out of the blue, she stopped at the stop sign for much longer than usual. And uh, she didn't know whether she should go forward or, or turn or just stay at the stop sign. She wasn't even really sure where she was at. She was very concerned. It was very unsettling for her. It's important for you to talk to someone about it, to bring the family in on it. I felt so much better after my son told me Mom, I don't want you to worry or be afraid. I'll be there for you, and we'll figure it out. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Will Stafford, CHS Washington representative, for a look ahead at the next farm bill. So where are we right now as far as what are you hearing? Are there any kind of common themes or things that we see will be the key issues to be debated in this process? As always, the SNAP, commonly known as the food SNAP portion of the bill, the nutrition side of things, will play a large role in the farm bill process. And that constitutes close to about 80% of the funding in a farm bill. On the ag side of things, we're definitely hearing from farmers already that protecting the farm safety net, as always, is a number one issue. Um, Keeping crop insurance available for farmers, keeping those Title I commodity programs like ARC and PLC working for farmers is very important. Keeping certain programs voluntary for farmers is another push that we've heard a lot of. Overall, I think we're going to see a similar theme that we've seen in farm bills of the past of keep the farm safety net strong and also a focus in Congress on that nutrition side of the bill. Will all the recent government spending and the climate programs and things that we're seeing, will that impact, you think, the farm bill? It might. Every farm bill is a bit of a budget process. Um, The budget always plays a role. There's only so much money that can be spent. On the climate side of things, I absolutely think that could play a role. We could see some sort of sustainability policy or some of the carbon policies that they've looked at push their way into the farm bill just because it's such a hot topic right now in the agriculture industry. And then I do think that the conservation title, that's title three, is going to play a large role in some of the debates, how some of those programs are working, which ones can be tweaked, what will stay voluntary, what might be pushed on farmers a little more, I certainly think will be a large discussion in this farm bill. Will Stafford, CHS Washington representative, thanks for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack will start off with the recent biofuels news and the RVO announcements and you have defended the announcement by EPA. Why? Let's talk about the number of waivers that were denied. And this wasn't just a handful of waivers that were denied. This was over 60 waivers. And the reality is uh, this is an administration that wants a true and accurate renewable fuel standard, one that reflects uh, when they say a certain volume level, they don't undercut it by granting waivers extensively. So I think it sent a strong message that the waiver process of the Trump administration was not going to be followed. 2020 was a pretty interesting year from a pandemic perspective and a a transportation perspective. And so this is a number, uh, taking a look at the numbers for those two years, is a reflection of what happened out there in the countryside because of the pandemic. Uh, And certainly understandable, we had to make adjustments in a lot of different places. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. 
on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. So for the last couple of years, we've been talking with Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President with the National Rural Health Association throughout this pandemic, uh, keeping us updated on how the rural health care system was holding up through this. And he joins us now. Brock, uh, quite frankly, I was hoping we wouldn't have to be talking anymore at this point, not because I didn't want to talk to you, but because I was hoping the pandemic would be behind us. But obviously, that's not the case. And now we have another surge with the Omicron variant. Uh, how is the rural health care system holding up on this latest surge? Well, Mike, thanks so much for the invitation. And I, like you, am uh, sorry about the content of what it is that we're talking about today. Um, yes, I, I think we're all surprised to see the recent development of the Omicron virus uh, mutation that developed in South Africa in at around Thanksgiving time and then moved to the United States uh, about three weeks ago, we were looking at uh, less than 1% of cases in the United States uh, being relative to the Omicron virus. Now we're up over three quarters of cases reported are now uh, of this uh, type of variant. So it has been extremely difficult uh, to track. difficult to track this because um, it's been growing so fast and, and, and it's a lot more uh, contagious than uh, the previous versions of the coronavirus. Are we seeing rural hospitals filling up? Uh, are we going back to shortage of bed space and things like that again? Well, it's interesting and a great question, Mike. Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, the We're still feeling the effects in many rural areas now of the Delta variant. Uh, the Omicron variant has not really reached a lot of the um, inter, interstates, uh, both the, the states in the center of the country. Uh, we're still dealing with the Delta variant, um, and so uh, we're, the hospitals are full and staffs are short uh, to take care of those patients. So, so part of the problem we're having is staffing. So a hospital may have 25 beds or 50 beds or 100 beds, but they may not have enough staff to say only uh, complement half of that uh, in terms of their capacity. So. So this has been one of the severe limitations in this current wave of, uh, of an outbreak. Um, and so that's been problematic as we've, as we've assessed this. Are staffing shortages due to vaccine mandates? Well, interesting. Uh, the Biden administration did put in a vaccine mandate for all healthcare workers uh, in October of this year. It was supposed to be finalized by January 4th, but um, the courts have put a stay on the implementation of that regulation. So as of the moment, uh, that is not in place. Uh, but I know that uh, part of the problem that we're experiencing is just uh, historic shortages of healthcare personnel in rural parts of our country. And then, of course, coupled with uh, burnout and fatigue that many are feeling over this last year. There's been departures, early retirements, uh, and such. So all of this has combined uh, to come together at a very bad time uh, as we face the Omicron surge. What have we learned uh, and gained from this past couple years that will help us deal with this variant and future ones? Well, that uh, really is an important question. I think I think the what we've learned a lot is that uh, we don't need to necessarily lock down and, and eliminate all economic activity as part of a reaction to a surge of Omicron, in this case, Omicron variants. Um, we're learning to live with this as part of the, um, a part of our risk taking that we normally take when we get into our cars or when we get into our tractors or combines. There's a risk that we take and evaluate um, I think this is now becoming an evaluation of risk that individuals are taking based upon their vaccination status, uh, their general overall health, uh, where the crowds or where the people are going to be coming into contact with. Um, so I think that's one important lesson um, is, 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 um, is treating this uh, rather normally in, in the terms of reaction. The second is looking at the variant itself and, and understanding uh, what, what it is. So in Omicron, we're seeing that we may have more cases because it's highly transmissible, but 
Uh, we're looking now and waiting to see the hospitalization data because hospitalizations may be the more important de data point, not, trans not the number of cases, uh, because it's likely that the Omicron variant could cause less severe disease, but it is more uh, transmissible. So the question will be how many people are actually being hospitalized as a result of testing positive uh, for this particular new variant that's just arrived. We came into the pandemic with a lot of rural hospitals um, on shaky ground financially. Some were closing. Uh, where are we now into this pandemic for a couple of years now? Well, that's, uh, we're monitoring that very closely. Uh, we came into the pandemic. Uh, 2020 was the highest number of the highest number of hospital closures uh, on on record uh, in rural communities. Uh, that was close to 20. Uh, in 2021, we had very, very few uh, hospital closures. That's due to two reasons. One, high volumes uh, due to increased uh, caseloads of COVID. And then secondly, uh, government payments through provider relief funds to providers have really uh, bolstered those operations and have created uh, a really nice uh, bonus, if you will, uh, to be able to help tide over some of the gaps that financially uh, that many hospitals have been sensing. So I think this year, uh, those not, those two factors have stabilized uh, the facilities, and uh, we're going to be anxious to see what happens in 2022 and 2023 once we no longer have the anticipated influx of provider relief funds. Brock, thank you for being with us, not only today, but for the last couple of years and uh, giving us uh, very valuable updates uh, for the rural healthcare system uh, that so many depend on as we've come through this pandemic. Thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you, Mike, and congratulations on your retirement. We'll miss you. Thank you. Take care. Merry Christmas. Brock Slaybaugh, Senior Vice President for the National Rural Health Association. With that, we'll wrap it up for today. Coming up tomorrow among our guests will be the President of the American Farm Bureau Federation, Zippy Duvall. Again, Merry Christmas, everyone. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. So be sure to tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The landscape of media has changed and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, Farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm Radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting.